Father, it is true that when peace like a river attendeth our way and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot you have taught us to say it is well with my soul. Teach us that again today, Father. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of what great hope we have when all other earthly hope seems gone. Remind us of Jesus. Now from the book of Job, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to do something just for a moment or two this morning that some of you will find quite painful, I'm sure. I'd like for you to think back to whatever it is that you would consider the worst day of your life. The day when everything seemed to come to a screeching halt. The day when your whole world seemed shattered and turned upside down. The day that you would just as soon forget. Don't forget it, at least for now. Try to remember, just for the briefest of moments, what that day was like. The kinds of things that went through your head. For many of us, I suspect certain sights and sounds are already replaying on the projection screens of our minds. For some of you, perhaps it's the hollow and life-altering ring of that telephone, maybe the hospital room with its tubes and its icy cold lights and the incessant beeping in the background. Maybe it's the look on that doctor's face as he gave you the news, or the look on your children's face as you gave them the news. For some of us, I say, the phrase, the worst day of your life, brings to life immediate, vivid memories. And for others of us, maybe we have to think a little bit harder because life's greatest blows haven't yet been dealt to us. Whatever the memory is for you, and especially if the memory is one that has not yet actually been created in your life, This book of Job is an extremely important book. It's an important book on the worst day of your life. It's an important book on every other day of your life when you face difficulties that are far less than you might. It's a book about our suffering. It's a book about God's goodness and His sovereignty. It's a book about the hope of salvation. The book of Job helps us answer questions like, where was God on that day? Why is this happening to me? Who's in charge anyway? Job forces us to ask questions like, is this present world really all there is? Or is there a redemption, a change, and a better life that we can look to? Job also teaches us marvelously how believers should and shouldn't respond in the midst of life's calamities. How do we comfort our friends on the worst day of their life? And how do we react ourselves when we are crushed and devastated? All of these questions and more find wise and thoughtful resolution in this ancient and true story. And it begins with Job experiencing the worst day of his life. I want to read it to you in chapters 1 and 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, All that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's a great deal that we do not know about this man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. We don't know exactly where the land of Uz was located, only that it was to the east, chapter 1, verse 3, of what we normally think of as the Bible lands. Nor do we know how Job, not living amongst God's chosen people, actually came to know about and worship the one true God. Was it that he was perhaps a friend of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or that he met them as they traveled from the east to the land of Canaan and did he perchance learn of the Lord through one of them? Or did God reveal himself to Job in a dream or in a burning bush kind of experience? We don't know. In fact, we're not even told when exactly Job lived. Most Bible-believing scholars suppose that these events must have taken place at least 4,000 years ago since, first of all, Hebrew tradition says that Moses was the author of this book and since In verse 5, we still find Job worshiping God in the pre-temple, pre-Levitical priesthood kind of way, namely by making his own sacrifices on his own altar rather than bringing them to the priests. 
So he lived a long time ago, but we're not sure when. So I say again, there's a lot that we don't know about the man Job. But what we are told about him in verses 1 through 5 is quite impressive. So let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of the man from the land of Uz, the greatest men of all the East. And there is actually much to admire and much to imitate in Job's walk with God. First, notice simply that Job was a godly man. A godly man. He was, verse 1, blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And that's not simply the narrator's estimate of Job. God himself in chapter 1, verse 8, and again in chapter 2, verse 3, says the exact same thing. Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job was a godly man. He wasn't a sinless man, mind you. We should not understand the word blameless to indicate that Job never sinned or that he was perfect. For the rest of the scriptures make it plain, don't they, that there's not a righteous man on earth, Ecclesiastes 7 who continually does good and never sins. And Job, as you read on in the book, in his better moments at least, is willing to admit that he's a sinner. You can see chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 as a for instance. So we shouldn't think of Job as a perfect man, a sinless man, but he was, according to the narrator and according to God, upright and blameless. Probably in the sense that the Apostle Paul will later say that elders in the church should be blameless or above reproach in Titus chapter 1. That is, Job was without major or unrepentant moral defect. He was a godly man. And I just pause to wonder if each of our stories were written down like Job's, how many of us would they say about us, she was blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil, or he was a godly man. Ask that of yourself when you look at the story of Job. Am I really a godly woman? Am I really a godly man? Job was a godly man. Secondly, observe that Job was a great man in verses 2 and 3. Indeed, he's called the greatest of all the men of the East. He possessed sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys and servants, which were all ancient symbols of wealth and prosperity. He possessed these things in numbers that are hard for us to fathom. And always an Old Testament symbol of blessing, Job had a great number of children, we learned. Two quivers full, one might say. So he was an undoubtedly great man. And while earthly greatness isn't always a corollary of godliness, that is to say, while it is not always true that if you're godly, God will necessarily make you great, we also have to say here that the two aren't mutually exclusive either. There are many wealthy, powerful, worldly, great people who also fear the Lord. And Job was one of them. He was a godly man. He was a great man. And thirdly, you'll notice that Job was a gospel man. A gospel man. That's the importance of verses 4 and 5. Job's sons and daughters must not have had the same moral and ethical scruples that their father had. And so he worried that when they gathered for their daily feasts together, they might let their hearts and lips run as freely as the wine. That they might in the course of their enjoyment and their singing, have actually sinned and cursed God. Verse 5. Job was concerned about that. And so what was his solution? Well, his solution, according to verse 5, was burnt offerings. Job would rise up early once a week on the day when his children would eat in his oldest son's house. And Job would go out some place to a hillside somewhere and he would seek to make blood atonement for the sins of his children. The same way that the Old Testament priests would someday be doing for the sins of the children of Israel. And so I say Job was a gospel man. It's true that he didn't know the name of Jesus. It's true that he didn't understand all that God would someday accomplish through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Job understood something of sin and something of the need for atonement. Job understood quite a bit of what we call the gospel. Job knew that he and his children, in other words, needed a lamb. Do you? Have you admitted your need for a lamb, for a sacrifice that can atone for your sins? 
Have you embraced Jesus? Are you, like Job, a gospel man or woman, a gospel boy or girl? And remember this before we move on from this brief sketch of Job's character. Just because you're a godly person, just because you believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that does not preclude you from great suffering and great testing and great temptation. It is the blameless, upright man who suffers in this story. This is not the health and wealth gospel. This is the greatest of all the men of the East who has his life turned into a train wreck. And if Job's life, the godly man, the great man, the gospel man, can turn into a train wreck, so can yours. And so can mine. Being a follower of God doesn't make us immune from suffering. We'll think more about why that is so before we conclude this morning. But for now, just realize that it is so. None of us are immune to the worst day of our lives. And if the worst day of your life has not yet happened, it will. If you simply live long enough in this world, it will. So I repeat, there is a great deal to learn simply from observing the character of the man from the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And there's more to learn as the day of his calamity begins to unfold in verses 6 and following. In verses 6 through 12 of chapter 1, and then again in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2, something interesting happens. In both of those places, the veil, if you will, between earth and heaven is pulled back for a moment or two And we are allowed to see what's going on behind the scenes. We're allowed to see what some have called the wager in heaven. When you watch this conversation between Satan and God, it's almost as if in these two amazing little scenes that God and Satan are making a bet. And the question is quite simple. Indeed, it's a question that we ought to ask regularly about ourselves. The question is this. If Job's greatness is taken away, what will become of Job's godliness? Or to put it another way, if God ceases blessing Job, at least in the earthly realm, if God ceases blessing Job, will Job cease blessing God? That's the question. That's the debate between God and Satan. And Satan presumes in verses 9 through 11 that Job is a mercenary, that Job is worshiping God merely for the capital gains that he can get from him. God, as we have already seen in verse 8, is clearly of a different opinion. And of course we know just by observing the two parties that are involved in this wager, we know who's going to win the bet. Indeed, this entire conversation, both of these conversations, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, are really all about God's sovereignty. They demonstrate, to be sure, Satan's malice. But they demonstrate God's sovereignty. In fact, you could write the word sovereignty in the margin of your Bible next to verses 6 through 12 and then again next to verses 1 through 6 in chapter 2. Because this exchange between God and the devil is amazing evidence of God's dominion over Job, over Job's welfare, over Job's calamity, and even over Satan himself. So just watch with me as God's sovereignty unfolds at three different points in this brief little interchange, focusing mainly on chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Notice, first of all, that the conversation, the wager, takes place at God's initiative. God's initiative. Verses 6 through 8 do not tell us that Satan arrived in heaven and that he already had developed a plan for how he would destroy Job. No, according to verses 6 and 7, Satan simply showed up in the heavenly throne room, defiant as ever to be sure, but that it was God, verse 8, who actually broached the subject of Job. It was God who said, have you considered my servant Job? God was the one who drew Satan into this wager over Job's integrity. Now, yes, Satan came up with some quite sinister terms in verse 10. But God was the one who initiated the discussion. God was the one, it seems, who wanted the test. 
And the same is true in chapter 2 when Satan comes again into God's heavenly court. God, not the devil, was the initiative taker in the discussion with Satan and the wager concerning Job's integrity. God's initiative. And then second, notice that God's sovereignty over Job's life shines through even in Satan's challenge. Satan's challenge. As you listen to what he says, even then you see that God is in control of the situation. That is to say that in verses 9 through 11, even the devil himself understands that it is God who has the power over Job's life. Listen to what he says. What's the answer? Why was Job so blessed? Why was he the greatest of all the men of the East? Well, let's allow Satan to tell us in verse 10. Have you... Speaking to God, have you not made a hedge about him? Indeed, you have blessed the work of his hands. Now, of course, Satan meant this as a critique. Satan was saying to God, Job only worships you because you treat him like he's your golden boy. He only worships you because you bless him so much. Satan, in other words, is not trying to prove God's sovereignty so that 4,000 years later, the readers of Job could worship God for it. But that's exactly what he ends up doing. Because he he tells us, in essence, that God was the one who made Job what he was. That's what Satan is reminding us. Job didn't do it alone. Rather, it was God who blessed the work of his hands. And Satan himself could not prevent Job's ascent, for God had made a hedge about him. So even Satan understood that God was sovereign over the blessings that came into Job's life. And not only that, but in verse 11 and again in chapter 2, verse 5, we learn that Satan also understood that it would be God's sovereignty at work if Job's blessings were taken away. Did you notice in both of those places what Satan said to the Lord? After God posed the challenge, he didn't announce, Satan didn't announce that he would put forth his own hand and pull down the hedge and touch all that Job had. Rather, he challenged God to do so. Put forth your hand, he says in both places. And why did he say this? Well, apparently Satan understood that if Job were indeed to be tested, God himself would have to remove the hedge. God himself would have to put forth his hand in some way. God himself would have to allow it to happen. If Satan was going to be allowed to touch Job's life, to ruin Job's life, or at least to attempt to, God himself would have to put forth his hand and give permission. Satan was going to be a more than willing instrument in Job's trial. But the instrument, he understood, would be held tightly in the sovereign grip of God's hand. And in chapter 1, verse 12, and again in chapter 2, verse 6, that's exactly what happened. And that's the third thing to notice. God's initiative, Satan's challenge, and then... God's permission. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 6. In both of these cases, before Satan can leave and do what he wants to do to Job, he has to receive God's permission, and he does. So do you see? It's not that God hedged Job about and blessed him, and that Satan then somehow found a way to climb over the hedge and cause mayhem in Job's life. Not for a moment is that what's happening here. God hedged Job about. God is the one who had given Job all that he had in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. God is the one who proposed the wager. And God would have to be the one to put forth his hand, verse 11, to remove the hedge and give Satan permission, verse 12, to wreak havoc in Job's life. Job was unalterably in God's hands. And Satan was unquestionably on God's leash. God had to give permission for Satan to smite Job. And he could only go so far, according to 1.12 and 2.6. And I hope the lesson in all that is plain to you. Namely, that when your phone rings at 2 a.m., or when the doctor says you only have two months to live, or when your child is prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome, or when the cancer comes back, or when the teenager runs away, or when the house catches on fire, when the layoff finally happens, when you press down on the brake pedal and nothing happens in response to that, there will surely be many questions. But one thing is certain. You can be certain that the reason for your calamity is not 
that Satan or some human wrecking ball has found a way to climb over God's hedge. You can be certain that God is not surprised in your moment of difficulty. You can be certain that just as God was the giver of all the blessings that you enjoy, just as God is the one who placed the hedge about you, He will be sovereign when the hedge is brought down and the blessings are taken away. You can be certain that when there seems to be a breach in God's hedge of protection, that it was God Himself who put forth His hand for wise, loving, Romans 8, 28 kinds of purposes. That is what these exchanges between God and Satan teach us. God is sovereign and wise and good and redemptive when His people suffer. Do you believe that? It's easy to believe it here. It's easy to preach it here. It's harder to believe it and to preach it when the difficulty comes. I hope God will enable you and me to do so. But you have to learn it from the Scriptures, not from the circumstances. Because when calamity strikes you, you almost never hear a heavenly voice explaining to you, I've allowed this suffering for a purpose. This is God here, and here's what I'm doing, and here's how I'm doing it, and here's why. You almost never will get that in the midst of your calamity. That was the truth with Job, wasn't it? We know what's going on in the throne room of heaven. Because the narrator tells us. We know why Job is suffering. Because God wants to test Job's faith and to prove that he and his spirit living in Job are greater than he who's in the world. We know why Job is suffering. But Job is never told that. All the way to the end of the book, Job is never told about the wager in heaven. He's never told why all this happened to him exactly. Job is simply walking along in his garden one day and like a bomb, his life explodes into a million tiny pieces with no explanation why. And it will almost assuredly be the same for you and for me. God doesn't often speak to us from heaven to make his will plain. He doesn't often allow the curtains to be drawn back on the discussions that take place there and the plans that are made in his celestial throne room. And that's why this book of Job is so important. Because in our day of calamity, we will probably not have the curtains of heaven peeled back on our sufferings. But we do have them peeled back here. And the reason why they're peeled back here is so that we may learn and apply the lessons of the life of Job. God wants us to learn now how to deal with suffering. God doesn't want us to wait until the phone call comes or the test results come in. We need to settle the issue of God's sovereignty in our suffering now. We need to learn now that when the car flips over or when the umbilical cord is in the wrong place, the answer is not that Satan has somehow gotten off his leash and is running wild. The answer is simply that God, for wise, loving, Romans 8, 28 kinds of purposes, has lengthened the leash. But he's still on the leash, and God is still in control. And what kinds of things happen, at least on the plain surface of life, when God lengthens Satan's leash or when God lengthens some harmful person's leash? That's what we find out in verses 13 to 19. Finally coming to the worst day of Job's life. In the space of just seven short verses for us, Job loses nearly all of his material wealth, nearly all of his servants, who, for a godly man like Job, probably would have been friends and objects of his affection. And Job loses all ten of his children. And he isn't told why. And then, to exacerbate his misery in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the Lord allows Satan to take Job's health, and in verse 9, even to take away his wife's moral support. And again, Job isn't told why. What can we say about these calamities? Well, as we're going to see in more detail next week, sometimes when calamity strikes, there isn't a lot that we can say. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, we have to learn the lessons of suffering and sovereignty ahead of time and from the Scriptures because often the pain of the moment makes it too hard to make sense out of anything. So there isn't always a lot to say about someone's suffering, especially when they're in the middle of it. So in the aftermath of Job's calamity, let me just 
be brief. We don't know what Job felt. We don't know all that went through Job's mind. We know what he said, and we know that he didn't sin in his response, but we don't know a whole lot, and so we can't say a whole lot. But we can say two things about Job's suffering that I think will be helpful to us. First, Job's sufferings were real. They were real. These things happened to a real man in a real place called us named Job. So let us not go down the path of some who read the book of Job and assume that this must just be a wise old fable along the lines of the Iliad or the Odyssey or one of Aesop's fables that teaches us a lesson. People read the book of Job and they say, all Job's sheep, all his camels, his donkeys, his servants and his children dead in one day? Surely that didn't actually happen. It's just a fairy tale, right? It has a happy ending and it's meant to teach us some helpful lessons about suffering and worship. Let me say that I sympathize with that line of thinking because when we read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, what happens to him does almost seem beyond the realm of possibility. But you should notice in your times of reading yourself that the book of Ezekiel chapter 14 particularly treats the book of Job as though it were not just a story with lessons to be learned, but as though it were certifiable fact. And some of us have heard and known more contemporary stories that sound almost as unbelieving and horrifying as this one, and yet we know are very real. And more than that, if we accept this fact, such unbelievable and supernatural events as the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, then surely we can believe that what is described in Job 1 and 2 really happened. Indeed, if it did not happen, then moving as this story may be, it has very little value to us. For if this is just a story, a fable, then God didn't actually prove his sovereignty and his goodness in the laboratory of a real man's life. He just talked about it in a story. And if this is only a story, then Job didn't really prove that a man can lose everything and still worship God. It's just warm and fuzzy religious literature. So do not be led, misled. Job's sufferings were real. And therefore, Job's sufferings, secondly, are relevant. They're relevant to you and me. Why do I point out to you that the book of Job is relevant? Well, simply because it is possible for us to accept the factual reality of this story and yet to live as though it didn't actually happen. It's possible for us to believe that this story is real and not to learn anything from it. It's possible because Job's sufferings are so far removed from us. Temporally, 4,000 years ago, culturally, his wealth is measured in sheep and camels. Geographically, none of us have ever been to where us probably was. It's possible because Job's story is so far removed from us to believe that it really happened, but to learn nothing from it. I'll give you an example. All of us believed in December of 2004 that a devastating tsunami hit South Asia just before Christmas, just after Christmas. But the story was so far removed from us in the United States that it didn't really impact most of our lives it didn't impact the way we think about things. It didn't impact our government's thinking about tragedy in the oceans. But eight months later, Hurricane Katrina hit our country. And many people, including many in the government, were completely unprepared. Don't let that happen to you with the book of Job. Just because it seems far away, it may be very well relevant to you and maybe in the near future. Don't miss the lessons in Job because these events happened thousands of years ago and thousands of miles away and to a man who lost thousands of sheep rather than thousands of dollars. Someday, though perhaps in different ways and on a different scale, the book of Job is going to unfold in your own life. Someday, for me and for you, if it hasn't happened already, we will have the worst day of our lives. And in that day, we're going to need some answers and some support and some hope and some wisdom from heaven. And Job, with more color and detail than perhaps any other book of the Bible, offers all of these things to each of us.
So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying in the book of Job. Now finally, let's take a look at Job's response to all of his calamities. We've looked at Job the man. We've looked at the wager in heaven. We've considered the worst day of Job's life. Now let's look at Job's response to all of his calamities. First in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Let me just back up and read beginning in verse 18 so that you remember how hard it must have been for Job to do what he does in verse 20. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And then turn over to chapter 2, verse 10. And notice how Job reacted there when, after being struck with sore boils from head to toe, And after his wife had lost her patience and urged him to curse God and die, verse 10, he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what can we say about Job's response in the midst of the worst day of his life? Three things as we close. First, notice that Job's reaction to his suffering is refreshing. It's refreshing. It's helpful. It's helpful, first of all, to see in Job's life that mourning and worship are compatible. That mourning and worship are compatible. In the day of his calamity, Job shaved his head and tore his robes. The equivalent for us of putting on all black and weeping alone. And in the day of his sickness, he sat down in a pile of ashes again to signify the mourning that was in his soul. And what we learn is that just because God has allowed difficulty to overtake you, that doesn't mean you can't still worship. Mourning and worship are compatible. And on the flip side, we also learn that just because we ought to praise God in the midst of life's calamities, that doesn't mean that we cannot or should not do so through tears. For Job is clearly a broken man, and the Bible tells us that he didn't sin in his weeping, his brokenness, and his tearing of his robes. If we want to worship God in the midst of trials, if we want to have faith in the midst of calamity, that's not the same as stoicism. Trust in God, worship for God, doesn't require us to put on a happy face at the funeral or to swallow our tears and to force ourselves to say, I'm fine, no worries here, I'm trusting God, everything's fine. That's not what Job did and that's not what we must do. Mourning and worship are compatible and Job teaches us that as he sits in the ash heap, worshiping. It's also refreshing to see that mystery and worship are compatible. Mystery and worship are compatible. As we said, and as the rest of this book will make plain, Job had no idea why God was allowing him to suffer so much. Job was not privy to the conversations between God and Satan that the narrator unfolds for us. Job does not understand what God is doing. And yet he worships. And yet he ascribes glory to God. And yet he ascribes sovereignty to God. And he urges his wife to do the same. So I say, how refreshing to see That one does not have to have all the answers to be able to say that God is good. One does not have to know all the mysteries of God's providence to be able to bless His name, to bow at His feet, and to worship Him. In fact, far from hindering our worship, it seems to me that often the realization of how little we really know of God's plans and purposes actually fuels our worship because it reminds us that He is God and that we are not. I hope that realization is helpful to you as it is to me. 
Job's response to me is very refreshing. Secondly, notice that Job's response is revealing. Revealing. That is, what Job says in chapter 1, verse 21, and in chapter 2, verse 10, reveals to us what Job believed about God and about human suffering. And what did he believe? Well, he believed, and you should write this down as the most important lesson in the book of Job. It's not a main point in this sermon, but it's the most important lesson in the book of Job. Job, when we read his response in verse 21 of chapter 1 and verse 10 of chapter 2, it's clear to us that Job believed that everything comes back to God. Everything comes back to God. Do you hear that echoing in Job's words, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2? What does Job say about his suffering in chapter 1, verse 21? The Lord gave and the Lord gave. Has taken away. And then in chapter 2, he says to his wife, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In both places, he said, God's the one who is good to us, who gives to us, and God's the one who allows adversity and takes away ultimately. Who did Job believe ultimately was in control of his life, indeed of his adversity, his financial ruin, his sickness, the death of his children? Who was sovereign in all those instances in Job's mind? Well, it was the Lord who gave, and it was the Lord who had taken away. Bible commentator Francis Anderson, I think, says it well when he writes, Job sees only the hand of God in these events. It never occurs to him to curse the desert brigands, to curse the frontier guards, to curse his own stupid servants now lying dead for their watchlessness. All secondary causes now vanish. It was the Lord who gave, it was the Lord who removed, and in the Lord alone must the explanation of these strange happenings be sought. And we might add to Anderson's comment that it never occurred to Job to curse or blame the devil either. Now true, Job isn't privy to the information we're privy to. He didn't know about the wager in heaven specifically, but he was a man who feared the Lord. He was a man who evidently had a good deal of knowledge of spiritual things. And so he must have known in general terms that there is a spiritual battle being waged in the heavenly places. He must have known something of that. And yet in the final analysis, Job doesn't ascribe his misfortune, his trouble to the dark forces. In the final analysis, Job ascribes his difficulty to the good, sovereign God. Satan, the watchless servants, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the wind, the fire that fell, all of these things, as Anderson puts it, were secondary causes. But God was in control. Well, that's not to minimize the idea that dark spiritual forces were at work in Job's demise. There can be no doubting from this story that they were. Satan was out to destroy Job and his family and his wife. And then most of all, he was out to destroy Job's faith. Satan would have killed Job if he could have and if God would have allowed it. And he longs to do the same kinds of evil things to blameless and upright people in every generation. And so we we must indeed trace our problems, at least some of them, back to the dark forces that we cannot see. However... As we saw in an earlier chapter, if we want to trace our problems and our calamities all the way back to the root, we mustn't stop our search once we discover that there's an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, as Peter says. If we want to get back to the very bottom of the matter, if we want real answers, we don't stop searching once we discover the wicked and roaring lion. We trace the story back beyond Satan, the roaring lion, to the wise, loving, sovereign God who has that lion on his leash. When tragedy befalls you, it's not simply because Satan is out to destroy you, though that is true. But also true and more important is that when tragedy befalls you, it is because for wise, loving, Romans 8, 28 kinds of purposes, God gives and God takes away. Because God is the ultimate sovereign over both our ease 
and chapter 2, verse 10, our adversity. You're never beyond the bounds of God's good government. Satan may be and certainly is a secondary cause of your trials, but God is on the throne. God has Satan and his and sinful humanity as well on his leash. So then what if you leave work this Friday night and you are hit and paralyzed by a drunk driver? Is God in control of that? Is that part of the all things that God promises to work together for your good in Romans 8.28? If it's not, where do you go? God, if Romans 8.28 is true and if the lessons in the book of Job are true, God had that drunk driver on his leash. He could not have veered across that yellow lane into your lane, yellow line into your lane, unless God for good, wise, Romans 8.28 kinds of purposes gave him enough rope to do so. But that raises a difficult question. Does that make God the author of sin? For surely, the drunk driving is a sinful act. There's no question about that. So if God allows it to happen, is He just as guilty of sin as the drunk driver? Is He just as guilty of Satan's sin in the book of Job as Satan was? No. Why not? Well, the drunk driver is guilty because he drove that way out of reckless, selfish motives. And Satan, who was quite likely behind the wheel with him, is also guilty because he is seeking to devour you, Peter says. But is God guilty for letting it happen, for giving Satan and the driver just enough rope to get across the center lane and into your life? Not for a moment. Why not? Well, Because God, if he were to allow such a tragedy or if he were to do something to you with his very own finger, would be doing it or allowing it for your good. And that's no sin. I can't explain to you how a drunk driver paralyzing me or my wife or one of my children or one of you could work for any of our good. I don't know the answer to that, but I believe the promises of Scripture that say that for his people, God causes all things. Drunk drivers, cancer, Tornadoes that kill ten young men and women in the prime of their life. God causes all things to work together for good. And if God is working for our good, no matter how bad an actual event may be in the heat and the pain of the moment, God has not sinned. And that is why Job doesn't blame God and he doesn't curse God in these verses. God sometimes allows horrific horrific things to happen to us and to those we love and we like Job don't always know the reasons why we don't know what he may be proving or what he may be preparing us for but he is sovereign and he is good and if you want proof of that look no further than the terrible hill called Golgotha where God according to his own predetermined plan the apostle Peter tells us in Acts 2 where God, according to his own predetermined plan, delivered his son over to be tortured and beaten and crucified. And even there, actually, especially there, God was working all things for good. And if he would allow the most cruel suffering that was ever heaped upon a human being, suffering that would have made Job stand back and wonder, if God would have allowed the suffering of Golgotha and worked that for good, then surely he's doing the same with bone disease and miscarriages and so on. Job believed that God was absolutely sovereign over his suffering. He realized that everything comes back to God, that the ultimate answer to all of life's quandaries is God. And as we're about to see, the narrator tells us that Job got it right. Job got it right. That's the third and final Sub point here. What do we say about Job's response? Well, he got it right. Look at verses 122 and then 210. 122, through all these things, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame 
God. It says, nor did he blame God. It doesn't mean that he didn't think that God was involved. He clearly did when he said the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. When it says he didn't blame God, what it means is that he didn't ascribe to God in propriety. He didn't say, God, you shouldn't have done this. This isn't right. And then in verse 10, we read again that in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's response was right. He was right to say that God was the one who had given and God was the one who had taken away. He wasn't sinning when he said that. He was right when he said that the Lord had brought upon him ultimately this adversity. But Job was also right not to put his finger in God's face. He was right not to join his wife and lose his patience and curse God. He was right to mourn and to tear his robe and to shave his head. He was right to fall to the ground and worship. Through all this, Job did not sin, the narrator tells us. These are the responses of a godly man or woman in the midst of the furnace of affliction. This is what uprightness looks like on the worst day of your life. Quiet, worshipful, trusting, rest in God. Is that what you will look like in the day of your trial? Is that what I'll look like? We can't say for sure. It's a question we need to ask before we have to. Will you be, will I be with Job's wife, shaking our fist at God, assuming that he's been unfair? Or will we be in the ashes with Job, mourning, yes, but also trusting and worshiping and waiting on the Lord? I cannot pretend to understand what Job and his wife felt in those horrid days, and I do not pretend to understand your pain. I doubt I'll even understand my own when it comes. But whatever pain you feel, and however deep it is, don't put your finger in God's chest. Remember Job. Remember that God works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Remember that Even if he gave you no other evidence of his love, God has given you his own son. So please, in the day of your calamity, don't curse this good, loving God. Don't shake your fist in the face of the God who gave you his son. Don't put God on the witness stand and begin making wild accusations against the one who promises to work all these things together for your good. No, no. In the day of your trial, fall to the ground and worship. In the day of your trial, say to yourself, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response on the worst day of his life was right. And so must yours be.